Welcome to the Locala Podcast. This is episode 19. I think, I mean, the journey with depression has really led me to believe that you can overcome anything and you can make an impact no matter who you are, no matter what you deal with, no matter what your struggles are or things that are in between you and life, there is still a way to make an impact. Welcome to Locala, everybody. I'm Lisa Anderson, your host and publisher of Locala Magazine. I am excited to have Judith Knapp with us here in the studio today. But before we get started, don't forget if you enjoyed this video and our others to go ahead and give us a like and subscribe to our channel for more great content. So let's go ahead and introduce Judith Knapp. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Like super excited to be here. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to be here too because I had a chance to sit down with you about a week ago and so learn a little bit about your story and I think there's going to be some tear jerkers going on on some of the questions. (laughs) I did tell her to swing for the fences, guys, so. (laughs) Yep, yep. (laughs) So here we go. Um, Let's go ahead and start everybody off a little bit easy. Tell everybody um, what it is that you do for your business. Okay, let's stay focused. I'll just talk about fee slashers. So um, I work with businesses who take credit cards, debit cards, or insurance, and I basically come in, do an assessment, and then I do a lot of referring, build custom programs to help lower their overhead costs and get them connected so that they keep growing, increasing their profits. That's the main thing I do. That's the main thing you do. So how did you um, kind of fall into this and how did you wind up starting your own business with it? Uh, Total accident. (laughs) I had COVID for 11 months and I started a pre-MBA once my brain defogged a little bit to prepare myself for a nonprofit that I was looking to launch. Um, And so I thought I needed a little bit more corporate background, more sales background. I've had a little bit, really nothing um, structured and I started applying for a ton of jobs. None of them really panned out. And then the company that I use for the payment processing reached out to me and said that they thought I might be a good fit and I told them they were crazy. (laughs) And then I did the training and I gave myself like three to six months to prove to myself that I could do the follow through and I could make a difference in my community. And I started seeing the impact. Um, So I worked as a 1099 for about six months. And then when the new year came, I was like, this is, I mean, this is something that I thrive in, that I love, that I'm able to actually help people with. Um, so fee slasher payment processing and business advocate has become a thing. You make it sound like a sexy job where most people would look at you and be like, aren't you getting thrown out every day of other people's business? I mean, that happens too. Um, it's definitely one of those things when I got started, I was like, Hey, I do payment processing and people were like, wah, wah, like this is okay. Hey, I'm an accountant who does specifically this specific thing. People are like, uh, I'm already fogged over. Yeah. Um, but it's really about what it can do for people. And that's the thing for me is it's not it's not the payment processing. It's not the, hey, let's talk about the conduits and that we're using and whatever the machine it is. But it's let's talk about your business and why you do what you do and what it is that drives you and what you want to see happen in the future. And let's set you up with a system that's going to do that. And then let's talk about people I know who I trust, who I've either worked with or I know personally that I would hand you over to and say like, Trust them with your marketing. Trust them with your website. Trust them with whatever. Yeah. Because some people, think, I mean, when you start a business, you don't have the time to do all of that stuff. Right. You get Nor set up with skills. whatever's available. You yeah. don't have the knowledge. You don't have the background. I mean, who has the time to sit and go through an 81-page statement? Nobody has that time in a business. What? Nobody does. And Nobody. then I'm there. That's what I do. <laughs> and for some reason, it's fun for me. I don't... I, 
not what I expected to get me going, but it, it is. It is. So. <laughs> well, you mentioned having COVID for 11 months. So let's talk about that a little bit. What was that like for you? Uh, it was an adventure. <laughs> I mean, I think of my, my grandmother who used to say it was something different when my mom would do something Californian and she was from, my grandma was from the prairies. Uh, that's how I feel about the whole like COVID experience. Um, I feel like it really became a pivot for me mm -hmm. is I was in child protection. I was an investigator and I got it from one of the kids that I was interviewing. Um, and then just 11 months of it refusing to fully go away. Um, two weeks solid in bed where nobody knew where I was because I was not cognizant for two weeks. And oh then goodness. when my brain started kind of working again, it was like I have energy for two hours and then I have no energy. Mm -hmm. um, I was on a ton of medication. My taste buds changed from day to day. I woke up sometimes and I was like, let's go. And then, I mean, I had times where I woke up with steroid energy at like four in the morning and would clean like half the bathroom in like this speed haze. And then I'd be passed out on the floor for like four hours. Oh my goodness. So I never knew what to expect. Um, it forced me to get really creative about how to make money to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. um, it forced me to get really quiet and still and self-aware and look forward into the future and be like, what do I actually want for myself? Um, what if this is my life? I mean, there were definitely moments. I mean, I used a cane to walk oh. around for about seven, eight months. Oh, and how old are you, Judith? 36. 36. Yeah. yeah. That I, had I mean, to be mentally. It was awful. Yeah. There were jokes in church. I got to go to the seniors events because, I mean, I was functionally 82 was the joke. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I can't say I'm not. But yeah. yeah, it was rough. I mean, there was a lot of psychological, like, there are things I know I wanted to do in life. And what if I lost the chance because of this stupid disease? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that was, it shook a lot about me about who I was and what I wanted to do and what my dreams were and my passions were. And then um, I'm part of the worship band at church where I have been. And being on the platform and having to sit on a stool where, while everybody else was standing and only being able to stand for one song before I had to sit back down and, like, just experiencing that weakness really f was forced humbling for me. Yeah. It was very much like, I can't do anything unless... God allows me to get better. <laughs> and unless something walks me out of this, I can't do anything. Yeah. I'm just, how, yeah. how was that transition for you? Like, when did you start noticing that you were coming out of it? Um, I went to visit my baby sister and, well, my all my sisters. I have three in Canada. Um, we did the drive up. I was still using the cane and having a really rough time. Um, and my little sister forced me to go to her naturopath, who is intense. <laughs> And I just invested what money I had left on completely transforming things. She looked at a lot of the medications and said, essentially, they were keeping the COVID in my body. Mm. So we did a three-month purge, complete transformation. And, um, yeah, within that time, I started seeing my body actually responding again. Um, I still have some stuff that's kind of lingered around. Some of that, I think, is rooted in fear. Yeah. Um, you know, like I struggle with exercise because... It used to be I would try to exercise and I would faint. Yeah. And I'm like, so now I still have moments where I get started and I start having a panic attack. And I'm like, okay, maybe this is not actually the exercise. It's the panic. So mm -hmm. there's still stuff, but for the most part. Yeah. yeah. What was that like, especially after you had had to deal with such mental challenge of, is this going to be my life? When you started realizing that, hey, it's not going to be your life. You're actually going to get to over that. What was that like for you? 
I mean, that's what drove me to do the pre-MBA. I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to get another chance at life and I'm not going to just be, you know, a schlep the rest of my life, (laughs) um, I want to try something completely different. I want to try something that is going to challenge me and is going to stretch me in ways that I have not been willing to be stretched. And I want to get out of my comfort zone and I want to get back around people and feeding into people and blessing people the way that I got blessed while I was sick. Um, and just, I wanted to do something completely different. Okay. And it, yeah, that's kind of what's happened. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, before we dive into where you're at now with some of the stuff that you're talking about, I want to die. I want to go back. Let's go back to young Judith. Where do you come from? And, um, what was your journey like as a child? (laughs) I mean, that's a little complicated. I, people ask that. <laughs> so I'm from Canada. I okay. mean, my dad was Canadian. My mom was American. Um, I don't know how a Pasadena California girl wound up marrying the prairie dude, but she did. <laughs> and it wound up with four crazy women being the children of that. Um, so I grew up in Canada, but I grew up everywhere in Canada. Like okay. I was born out on the prairies. I only lived there for a short time. We moved to small town, Ontario and small town, Ontario and small town, Ontario. And then we moved to Montreal area. Okay. Um, so the longest of my life I spent was in Montreal area. Okay. Um, moving there when I was 12 and suddenly having to learn French was a fun little challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I did not like the challenge, but I was grateful <laughs> because if I'd been in elementary school, I would have been forced to go to an all French um, school. My oh, wow. sister was. It was a challenge for her. Um, but I went into high school and I got to go to an English high school that was super dysfunctional, but it was there. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, did you learn fluent French? Would you say you're fluent in French or would you say that you say still stumble? Anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, when I started working, my first job was in like, it's a Zellers, mm-hmm. which is something like Walmart, but it doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, the Canadian version. And if I didn't know a word, I would tell somebody I didn't know where it was because I would rather say that than, Hey, I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. There's a little bit of the insecurity there, but by the end of a year and a half working for them, I knew so much French that I had friends who were completely French. I don't think I ever got fully bilingual, but mm-hmm. I, I did get quite fluent. Okay. Well, that's good. So I know at 16, you had quite a big adventure. So (laughs) let's gear up for that. How did, how did that happen? And tell people about what that adventure was. Okay. Um, so when I was 12, we were moving and I got diagnosed with depression, chronic clinical depression, um, went through a lot of medications, a whole bunch of really awful counselors. Sorry guys, but yeah. Um, and when we moved to Montreal, it just got worse. So high school was hell, just awful. Like my high school was where they sent the kids who had gotten kicked out of every other school. But for me, it was just the most local. So when I was 16, I was hospitalized for clinical depression. My counselor thought that I was suicidal. Um, at the time, I, ironically, I wasn't. I had been, and then I was no longer, and that's when she hospitalized oh. me. <laughs> she had really good timing. Um, <laughs> And I was in the hospital for a month. She literally said that she'd forgotten that I was there. Which oh I was my like, gosh. Again, great counselor. Don't do that if you're in counseling, guys. Don't yeah, put don't people places forget. and forget that they exist. It's don't not forget awesome. about your patients. But it was an oddly like good experience for me. Um, so I came out of that and 
my entire world had been shaken. I had to go back to high school where my teachers were worried about me. Nobody knew what had happened. There were a million rumors. And I was also in a choir at the time. And my choir director was this incredible woman named Erica Fair, who I still love and is on my Facebook. And hopefully she'll see this. Um, and she reached out to my parents and said, hey, I'm going on this mission trip. I think Judith would be an amazing fit, and I would love her to come with us. So she submitted my name for this mission trip. My dad agreed. Um, I did the interview. I was very straightforward with them. Hey, I don't know if you want me to go. I'm a little unstable. Still am. Um, and I got approved for the team. So I, my first time ever traveling by myself was with a group of, group of 21 strangers, well, 20 strangers, because I was the 21st stranger, <laughs> um, to Rwanda. And we were the first team with youth allowed back into the nation after the genocide. Mm. So, I mean, it had been since 1994. It was 2003. I mean, there's been all this time, but there was still so much rawness there. And being exposed to that after what I had already gone through was just completely life transforming yeah yeah can you tell when we talked before you talked a bit about what you had seen mm -hmm. and the attitudes of people so can you describe the scenery I mean because it was still even though they were allowing youth in it was still pretty brutal for you to see yeah definitely I mean there had definitely been a lot of reconstruction they got started not um but there were still bodies lying places when we got into the outskirts of cities. Um, you could see things like body parts r going down the river. Mm. Um, we went to a couple of genocide sites that were super raw, like bodies were still where they had fallen. They were bones at that point, mm -hmm. but the smell was still there uh, on their clothes. Um, even still, like you can go into those spaces and there's still a bit of that smell, but it's not the same. Yeah. Um, it was definitely... It's a smell that you never forget. Yeah. Yeah. It's an image that you never forget. Yeah. It's pretty difficult. I can't even, I can't even, I've never experienced anything like that. So I can't even imagine what the feelings were of that. And then to be in a situation where you felt so depressed that you were willing and thinking about possibly taking your own life to mm -hmm. seeing what it was to lose life when it wasn't your choice. Um, can you talk about the people's attitude towards you and especially when you were telling your story? Cause they, you had mentioned to me how much they wanted to hear your story. So can you talk a little bit about that for us? Absolutely. Uh, it was such a perspective thing for me. Like you go there and, um, we had all these presentations prepared and we did kids programs and stuff like that. And it was all great stuff. But then we went to this one widow's group and the room was small. I mean, it was small and they had like benches and we fit like, I don't know, like 80 people in this itty bitty little room all squished together. And they had these widows up talking about their experience of the genocide and their experience of life. And a lot of these women had been raped or seen their entire family killed in front of them or had children from you know, being attacked, and many of them had AIDS, most of them had AIDS, um, and they'd had these, like, horrible experiences that they were just talking about, and they're just having that conversation, and it was something that was shared inside the room, 
but then they offered for us to come up and one of my teammates who's just a little older than me got up and talked about her experience of having lost her nephew who was uh, born and then he died and Mm -hmm. these women just came up and they wrapped their arms around her and just embraced her and there was no diminishing of well that's nowhere near as bad as what I've been through like nothing like that and so they encouraged me to get up and talk about what I've been through like six months before and like the attempts to kill myself and just that loss of purpose and loss of hope and loss of vision. And it was incredible how it, like they saw something in that, that they got, that they understood and they could, they could share. And Mm -hmm. they just, they came up and they, I mean, I didn't understand almost anything that they were saying, but they had this great, like me too. Yeah. Me too. Like I've, lost hope I've lost vision but here's what I've done and here's where I'm at now and like some of these women you could see the death in their eyes that they were still in that place and they were crying from my story about how like no hope can come back and I can get a new vision and I can move forward in life and I was like somehow I'm inspiring these women (laughs) like I was like okay that makes sense but um some of them were just coming up and embracing me and being like yeah I mean, I was 16 when the genocide happened and that happened to me and I lost all hope. And then I had this child who, I mean, was from a terrible situation, but I had them and then I took in all the orphans from my neighborhood and that gave me purpose and just like how you serve people becomes so important. And it just completely changed my perspective on like everything. Yeah. Yeah. How was it um, coming, going back to Canada after that? rough yeah (laughs) I mean I had just graduated high school I was entering into um in Quebec you have something something called CJAP which is like junior college okay um it's the in-between of high school and university it's the last year of high school and the first year of university in the same little place you kind of experiment so I had gone into um creative arts I wanted to be in performance arts. I wanted to, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I was going to be in music. I was going to be in something, but there was something in me that was saying like there needed to be something more. And I didn't know what that was. And then I got this amazing teacher who was teaching philosophy and we had these amazing conversations about my experience in Africa. And, um, she pushed me really hard to switch to liberal arts because she was like, you need a challenge and you need to refocus. And because of her, I actually wound up in um, the international development program when I went to university. So instead of going into the arts program like I had anticipated um, and the music program, I wound up in um, international development with African studies as my basis and a minor in philosophy, thanks to her. Wow. Yeah. So, okay, so tell, that kind of brings us a little bit full circle. I know there's kind of a big chunk in between because now we're dealing with your late teens, early 20s, mm-hmm. and you're 36, so obviously there's been a few years between here. Most but... of us can agree with <laughs> Somehow you got to Florida. Can you tell us briefly how you got to Florida? Uh, I married a guy who had seasonal affective disorder. That would do it. Yeah. It's kind of how my father had seasonal affective <laughs> disorder. That's how I wound up in Florida. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So there's things that you're doing with your brother. Now, um, I want you to talk to me like I have no clue on what you're saying or talking about any of this. Because I know when we, ha- when we had the last conversation, your brain is on so much fire and, <laughs> and um, all of the things. And I just want to make sure that everybody understands 
all the nuances that you're doing for this. So talk about the nonprofit that you and your brother have created and and what you're doing with it. Okay. Um, so I've been working with the organization since I first went in 2003. Um, the organization's 21 years old in Africa. Okay. The nonprofit does child sponsorships. So we educate children, we feed them, we clothe them, we provide for their families and their livelihoods so that they're able to sustain that and they don't have to go home and work okay. when they're 13. Was this nonprofit already established or did you and your brother establish it? He had established it himself. Okay. Um, he was a college student and got a grant and... The grant covered his schooling and his food, and then he received another scholarship, I believe, and then he started basically feeding a couple of kids in the area. It started with one, then it kind of expanded out, and then it was this vision that he developed um, that had kind of spurred in him. So um, I just, I mean, I've always come alongside whenever I can, but then he's always been kind of the vision person, and then um, semi-recently, right before COVID, we had kind of gotten together. I finally went back to Africa again for the something time fifth time or something like that and we started spitballing ideas about how this vision was so much bigger than what we were actually seeing Mm -hmm. so I mean we have elementary schools we run we have a high school we own um we have like all these things that we've done with tech training for women we've purchased goats I mean I personally own 56 goats somewhere in Africa (laughs) somehow um there's like a lot of things that we've done, but we've always felt like it, it was, it was bigger. Like there was yeah. something bigger. So we are going to be launching the nonprofit. We've been talking about that since before COVID. Um, but then what happened during COVID is we had to pivot and change everything about how we were doing things. We couldn't do African children's choirs cause we couldn't obviously transport kids and have them move between church to church and like, let's spread COVID like fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we couldn't do that anymore. So we had to kind of hold off. And what happened was like a major pivot is my brother, not my biological brother. He's my um, Wasaza Wanje, which means my brother in Kinyarwanda. He um, got involved with uh, a couple of young men who were doing uh, wholesaling. They were starting to do wholesaling in Kenya. They wanted to move into Rwanda. So he was he's super supportive of young men in business and young people in business. And he was like, hey, I'll partner with you guys. And that wound up with us somehow owning a warehouse and truck and helping provide for 500 convenience stores just in Rwanda. Wow. Um, and then he had partnered with a young man in Rwanda who was managing motos, which are basically small motorcycles that people use as taxis. Um, and he was managing, I think it's 48,000 of them. My number might be slightly off, give, give or take a few thousand. Um, and... He just, I guess, kind of took off. Oh. My brother contacted him, was like, uh, you coming back? And he was like, no. He's like, you're going to let me take over the business? He goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, <laughs> cool. We're now managing 48,000 taxes. Wow. So it's just kind of happened. Okay. And that's, it's just kind of happened. I mean, my brother's been involved in so many things. Like he was a financial advisor and consultant for Fortune 500 companies. He worked with... Um, one of the financial advisors for Grant Cardone, like he's done all kinds of crazy stuff, including launching and helping launch nonprofits and lots of education. And then we get to this point and now this is like the next step is we're launching an impact investment fund and then the nonprofit side in the United States so that we're able to literally transform Africa 
the, the continent of Africa. <laughs> starting Not with, just one country, but yes, the continent. Starting yes. with Rwanda and Uganda and then spreading from there. Okay. So um, explain exactly how you're going to be impacting. You're going to be doing wholesaling. Is that correct? Um, yeah. To help. Uh, I think you had told me to help people start convenience stores and different things like yeah. that that would be sustainable and provide jobs and income in the area. Can yeah. you dive into that a little bit more? So that's a big part of it. Um, most of the convenience stores have basically been self-sourcing, and they don't have a lot of resources available to them, and a lot of them don't have trucks or vehicles or whatever, so it's whatever they can bring in. Mm-hmm. Um, these convenience stores are often like the lifeblood of their communities, a lot of the people in the community, especially like Rwanda's all mountains. So if you live on the hill, like you don't necessarily have the ability to get to the next hill, which has a bigger convenience store than the one you have there. So whatever bread they have or meat they have or foods they have or snacks they have is what's available and what's readily available. So being able to bring in the ability to drop ship allows us to lower their overhead significantly, increase what they have access to sell, and that allows us to basically increase lifestyle of everybody Mm -hmm. on that community yeah um so that part is in place um we're expanding that part i'm not entirely sure if we'll be doing that everywhere um the little details for the other nations are still obviously getting hammered out because we're still working on rwanda and uganda but then um our goal is basically to be investing in convenience stores across Africa because they are the lifeblood of their community and leveraging people who are already entrepreneurs, already working, already serving their community to help them basically level up significantly in a way that they just don't have the finances to do. Yeah. Um, Because it doesn't take a whole lot. Sometimes it's just, you know, $1,000 doubles their business. Sometimes it's like $5,000 allows them to build a building that actually doesn't leak. I mean, like there's all these little things that make a massive difference and it's not a ton of money for us but it's everything 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 over there yeah so you talked about um getting your pre-mba so what does all of that entail does it tie in with what you're doing now and i mean it does i i decided i wasn't going for an mba quantitative methods and i are not necessarily the best of friends (laughs) i did get through it and i did really well with the pre-MBA. It gave me a lot of new ideas Mm -hmm. and new directions on things. I learned the things I like doing and that I have strengths in, and I learned the things that I definitely want to be outsourcing. So that's helpful. Um, It also put me more in the business mindset of things where you're having to look at one thing and then problem solve seven million different ways of doing it how do we tackle this from seven different angles? And that's become like one of my favorite things to do now is like I sit down with other business owners, especially small business owners, and we talk about, well, have you tried this weird way of doing it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about like if we did this? And sometimes the ideas that come out of those conversations, just like the conversations with my brother, uh, they just, there's no way you could have come up with that by yourself. Yeah. And that's, a lot of what the pre-MBA did for me is having conversations with people in South Africa and wherever else where they were taking this class. You're like, oh, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. So you said your brother's not your biological brother. So how did you guys meet? Um, He was our translator on the first mission trip. And then um, we've just stayed attached basically since then. So it was him and one other guy was doing our translations for the whole thing. And then 
we went back several times and he wound up being our translator on several of the trips and then just being somebody that we connected with because once the mission was up and running it was somebody we wanted to be a part of somebody we were going with always so it was always kind of a we would go with him for part of our trip whatever trip we were doing and we would you know go to the the churches and we would go to the corner stores and we'd go to the the kids things and we'd go and do goat deliveries and child sponsorship visits and yeah um, I personally have sponsored three children in Rwanda which was like the craziest thing when I first went to Rwanda I mean we my church had already sponsored a child and it Mm -hmm. turned out that they were in Kigali in Rwanda which obviously this was not planned on my part somebody else was planning it clearly Um, so I got to meet him when I went on my first trip and then I've gotten to meet one of my sponsored children every time that I've gone that's really cool how many times have you gone over um, I think six. Six? Okay. I think six. But obviously with the new launch, that should be increasing yes, significantly. Yes. And does um, your brother live over in Rwanda or Uganda? Yeah. Right now he's over in Rwanda. He okay. did live in the States. Um, his family comes back and forth to visit family members and stuff like that during the year. But full time they're in Rwanda. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, the time has flown by. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so before we close, I do want to ask you the last question as of, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I did not ask you? I think, I mean, the journey with depression has really led me to believe that you can overcome anything and you can make an impact no matter who you are, no matter what you deal with, no matter what your struggles are or things that are in between you and life, there is still a way to make an impact. Um, I had many years where I was a semi-functional human being, where I was not working at like real life. I had no vision. I had no hope. I had no whatever. And still somehow I was able to be used to make a difference just with something small like sponsoring a child or having a conversation with my brother or donating to a missionary or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I think focus on the small stuff. Um, focus on the moments where you can make a difference. And that has always been the thing that pulled me back out is when I felt like the world was about to fall in upon me. It was, we have something we can do to make something better for somebody. I might still want to just curl up under the blanket some days, which does happen. Um, But if I can make a difference for a business, if I can make a difference for a child today, it was worth getting out of bed. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Well, Judith, how can people find you and support you? I mean, I'm kind of everywhere. <laughs> That's what I've been told. I'm kind of everywhere. Um, I am on Facebook. Uh, easiest way to find me is at Fee Slasher um, on Instagram, on Facebook, and YouTube, which is very empty, so don't judge it yet because it is in the midst of being grown. Um, otherwise, I mean, my email and my phone number are all on the Facebook page, oh, so Facebook page. you can okay. reach me. Um, what about uh, if they wanted to help you with nonprofit stuff? Um, so we've also launched the self-care initiative of Central Florida page, so they can reach me through that. They can reach me through my own Facebook page, okay. um, which, again, if you look up Slasher, you'll find me as well okay. as my page. Um, okay. And then they can reach out to me that with that, and we're talking about this year launching the impact investment fund so everybody will know once it's up and rolling because I will be screaming it from the rooftops. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Judith, for joining us and sharing that story with us. Um, And if anybody saw, I put...
tissues here for Judith, so I wasn't just letting her cry willy-nilly. Um, <laughs> Much appreciated. So I really do appreciate having you here, and thank you for sharing your wonderful story with us. It's always an awesome time to be with you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us here on the Locala podcast, where we focus on connections through stories. I'm Lisa Anderson, your host. I'll have all the information for Judith and her Facebook page linked in the description below. If you would like to see more about our magazine, you can visit www.localamag.com. That will also be linked in the description below as well. We thank you so much for joining us here. And if you enjoyed these stories, please give us a like and subscribe. Thank you so much. And we look forward to speaking with you on the next podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Locala podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead, like, share, and download. Your support is truly appreciated.